can you just sort of repeat those last three or four words? You know, if they're shouting at me, I'm a bit overwhelmed, I don't know, I don't know what to say. And then my complaint goes, yeah, I want another, you know, I've paid all my money tonight, I've been here all night, I, just, I don't care that you're closing, you don't care. No, I don't care. But what I'm doing is giving me a bit more thinking time, and that person is all also, by mirroring back to them, they're hearing what they're saying themselves. Welcome to the Diageo Bar Academy podcast, Bar Chat. This is your host, Tristan Stevenson. On today's episode, I am speaking with Martin Richards. Martin is a crisis management specialist who spent 30 years in the Metropolitan Police in London, reaching the rank of Chief Superintendent. He was, for 14 years, an international hostage and crisis negotiator coordinator and is a graduate of the FBI Negotiators Programme. He has been deployed to negotiate the release of UK citizens throughout the globe, including Afghanistan, Africa, Iraq, and Israel. Why is this man on a podcast for bartenders, I hear you ask? Well, as anyone who works in hospitality will know, the role of the bartender goes far beyond just making drinks. It's our duty to keep our guests safe and content, which is a challenge that often requires managing expectations, reading moods, and communicating in an effective way. All skills that are perfected by the hostage negotiator. Martin and I discuss the role of the hostage negotiator, how to assess state of mind, techniques he employs to diffuse situations, how to affect change with language, and how to demonstrate empathy. Martin also shares some thrilling anecdotes from his time as a hostage negotiator. Okay, welcome to this episode of Bar Chat. I am joined in the studio here by, uh, with Martin Richards. Good to have you on board. I'm so excited about this conversation um, because I talk to a lot of people in the drinks industry on this podcast and people who are in some way connected to the drinks industry, but um, someone with expertise in hostage negotiation isn't uh, perhaps an obvious choice. But I think I'm hopeful and I think you'll agree that there is a lot to learn from, from what you do or have done. Uh, and, and, and it's a very applicable to, to us as bartenders and people who work in hospitality. I think, well, I, well, I'm connected to the bar industry myself, Doctor, the other side of the bar rather than your side of the bar. <laughs> um, well, I go both sides. Um, in fact, I prefer the side where um, I don't have to do much work, to be honest with you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the skills have been proven to be transferable, you know, be it corporate teams, operational tactical teams and all sorts of employments. And, and of course, you know, your, your bar staff and your bar employees, and we can explore how those skills um, will be transferable. I mean, I always give an example where imagine a negotiator at an armed police siege, if you like. And if you were to ask that negotiator, how are you feeling and what are you thinking? They would say words like, I'm anxious, um, I actually don't know what to initially say. Now, put somebody up in front of an important sales pitch or dealing with some conflict in a bar, maybe, and you say, how are you feeling? And it'd be identical words. Yeah, exactly. It's that same feeling of anxiety and the sense of responsibility and the desire to resolve a situation, right? And it occurs so much in life in work and, you know, outside of work and in various different professions, 
probably most professions, in fact, you, at some point you're going to come up against it. So how do you become uh, a hostage negotiator? Perhaps you want to tell us a little bit about your background uh, and experience. Yeah, I'd love to. I mean, it, it's different for everybody, you know, why they, why they become negotiators. But there's sort of like a, a, a career progression into it, if you like. Um, so I did 30 years in the Metropolitan Police in London. And one stage in my career, I was an inspector in the firearms department. And we used to get called to countless sieges, uh, people barricaded in premises. And I'll be in charge of the armed officers. And all we really wanted to do was go in and solve it. You know, if there's an arrest to be had, let's arrest the person and uh, let's end this quickly. And I used to, we used to set up an armed cordon and then these people would turn up and they'd be quite smartly dressed. And I was told that they were negotiators and that we would just wait and they would go off and they would engage with the person who's inside the premises and we would wait. And then eventually the person would come out uh, without the need of force, often within a matter of a couple of hours. I think the longest, the average length of a police siege is seven hours. Oh, that's longer than I would think. That's a long time. Yeah, that's average. So these guys, they used to achieve this great feat, I used to think. And I sort of wanted to be part of it. And so you find out you know, how you get to be a negotiator. You have to go on a selection process and you, you have to pass that. And you have to have a two-week course. And then if you're lucky enough, you go on to the FBI course in Quantico. And then you work your way up in a sort of a rank structure within the negotiation world. So you're not allowed to initially talk to the person in the crisis. You have to be like a backup, if you like, a coach. And you work your way up to be the first person to actually, you know, the the one-on-one, the direct individual. So it's like a stairway, if you like, a progression once you're in that world. So when it comes to listening, what exactly are we listening for? Um, presumably we're, I guess, trying to kind of assess the character and the mental state of the person. How do you go about doing that exactly? Well, we've got a negotiation uh, sequence or staircase, if you like, we call it. And we work from the bottom to the top. And you start off with active listening, and we can talk about that. If you actively listen to people, you will demonstrate empathy. And it is by demonstrating empathy towards people that you build rapport. I mean, one follows to the next. And only when you have taken that time and effort to build that rapport, only then have you earned the right to try and influence and persuade people uh, and to problem solve and to give advice. But what tends to happen, most people, and I'm included in this because I don't do this in every conversation I have because it is exhausting. So what most people do is they default to the far end of that and they go straight to advice, straight to problem solving, straight to try and influence people. And an example I give people is your your partner, your loved one comes home from work and they say, oh, I just had a car accident and the other person failed to stop and drove off. Now, the first thing most people will say to that is, well, make sure you tell the insurance company and did you inform the police? Those two statements. Rather than that sounds terrible, how do you feel? And we go to this problem solving, we go to this given advice. And the reason we do that, well, there's several reasons, but one of them is because it's easy. No thinking is required. Give advice. Where, whereas the hard work mm, yeah. is this, is the 
the active listening to, to demonstrate the empathy. So sorry, just pausing on the empathy thing then for a second. You want to demonstrate empathy to build rapport. I understand that. But oftentimes in a negotiation scenario, and particularly when it's, you know, a proper hostage negotiation or police or criminal activity or whatever, it must it, it's it's sometimes impossible to truly empathize with the individual you're speaking to. Like, you know, they're they're a maniac or genocidal or, you know, whatever, you know, it's, it's race, racially um, derived, whatever it is they're doing, something that you just can't relate to. So it's, it's a false empathy, right, that you're, you're giving them. You're pretending to listen to what they're saying and sort of agree with what they're saying, but in actual fact, you know, that's, that's part of an act. Is that right? No, you are listening. I mean, you're right in what you say in that we deal with some very nasty people. And it's very difficult to demonstrate empathy towards people you don't like. I mean, but we have to deal with kidnappers. Those kidnappers put hostages on telephones to ring their loved ones, um, uh, you know, make them lie, torture them. They're horrible people. Kidnappers, by the very nature of the word kidnapper, is not a nice person. Um, and yet we have to demonstrate empathy to that individual. Otherwise, we won't influence them. Why? I have to build trust with that person, either to let the hostage go and or to reduce their demands, if it's maybe financial demands, whatever it may be. Now, that kidnap is going to do nothing for me uh, for a very long time um, unless I've built rapport with them. And like I've said, I've got to demonstrate empathy. I've got to build rapport somehow with this person we don't like. Is it a case of acknowledging what they are saying and that you are hearing it, or do you go as far as to agree with what they're saying? It's the first statement. We're not going to agree to, say, final requests of people that maybe have suicide ideations. We're not going to agree um, that it's a great thing for them to do to harm hostages. You know, we're not going to agree to them committing more criminal acts. We're going to be very honest with people um, because we can't afford... We may keep certain in information back, but we'll be as honest as we can with individuals. If I had somebody in a crisis, let's say, who was threatening to jump off a building, and I've dealt with countless um, situations like that in, in my time as a negotiator, somebody in a real crisis, if I lie to that person and they find out that I am lying to them, either by using their phones and getting them to... Um, social media, whatever it may be, where's the trust then? Why should they believe it? Why should they come down? And why should they not go up and do it again? So we're very honest with them. What's going to happen to them when they come down? Or when somebody comes out of that armed seizure I mentioned very early on. If somebody says, am I going to get arrested? Yeah, you're going to get arrested if that's the case. But here's what we will do for you. You know, when you do come out, you know, we're bringing reciprocity into that as well. And so... You can't say to somebody in the safe in that situation, no, you're not going to be arrested, you'll be free to go, because it's rubbish. Even they know that. So we have to be honest with people. Um, that helps build the trust. Um, and you know, once we've got that trust, we can then start to influence. But, but along with all that is the active listening. Yeah. So do you think there's ever a situation where it's appropriate to perhaps agree a little bit or give a little bit to the person you're negotiating with just so that it allows you 
you know, more leverage to bring them back round through some other kind of conversational strategy? Yeah, I mean, when you get to the influencing stage, there's there's two, for me, reciprocity and consistency principles. And if you ever read Robert Cialdini, um, we use those a lot in the negotiation world. Consistencies, well, you talk about giving something, so reciprocity. So we all know, um, particularly in Western uh, society, if I do something for you, you feel the need to do something. Most of us know that, particularly in bars. You know, you go and buy somebody a drink, you feel as though you've got to buy them a drink back. You know, now in the negotiation world, people often say, well, "What have you done for me? Or why should I come out? Or why should I do this for you? Now, why should I come down? Why should I put this knife down?" So they always ask you what you've done for them, invariably. Now we know that's coming. So in our world, we'll write down a list of. Tiny little things maybe we've done for them that build up to a big picture. So there may be things like, we've always answered the phone when you've rung. Um, I'm, you know, I'm here because I care about you. Uh, and I came straight away to talk to you and I heard that you're in a crisis. We haven't come in to the building like you, you know, like we said we wouldn't. You, you can trust me. I haven't lied to you. Um, I've got a solicitor for you ready. We've got, you know, we brought somebody down here that you know you wanted to talk to. So there may be five or six things, if you like, that we have done for them. Now, if I every one of those on their own, not a great thing, but it builds up to a big picture of doing a lot of things for somebody. Mm. Now, if I'd have said all that to you, I then would have said, "What are you going to do for me?" Mm, sure, because I've yeah. done all these things for you. So that's when you ask the question about, you know, do we give things to people? Yeah, if, and if we can, because we play on the reciprocity principle. Yeah, this that strikes me as a really great, well, potentially a great strategy for dealing with problem customers at times where, you know, they've been in the premise for a while. You know, we let you in, we gave you your drinks, you've sat down, you've had great service, all this kind of thing. It would be quite easy yeah. to reel off a list of things that we've done. Um, and you know, now what are you doing? What are you doing back? You're causing trouble, or you're going to have a fight, or you won't leave, or whatever it might be. Yeah, yeah like brilliant. It. Yeah, and you could probably, I mean, you just rattled off five on the top of your head. I bet if you really thought about it and wrote mm. them down, you into double figures. Oh, it'll be loads, yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, um, what about assessing um, the mental state of someone you're dealing with? Are there any techniques? Well, what part of one of the active listening elements we use is what we call emotional labeling. And this is really powerful. And it's where we will name it to tame it. So when people are emotional, they intense emotions, they cannot hear you. They cannot listen to you. So actually your words are useless. Talking to somebody who's got intense emotions, be it somebody maybe who's, it can be any emotion, very angry, very upset, uh, really frustrated, uh, really, um, really happy. Even you know, when people got intense emotions, they won't hear. So what we have to do is tone those emotions, and we do that by getting them out there, identifying them, and talking about them. Um, and we use qualifier words when we do it. So I don't say to you, Tristan, Tristan, you know, you're sad. At the moment, or you're you're angry because you'll come straight back at me and say, "No, I'm not," and and then we get into a fight. Mm. 
fight flying situation. So we qualify them. You know, you, you, you sound really upset. Now, you, I haven't said you are, uh, you know, or you look really concerned at the moment, you know, or you, you're looking angry. Now, you can then come back to me, and you probably will come back to me. You'd either say, yes, I am, because, or you would disagree with me, which I don't really care because you've given me the right emotion. You'll say, no, I'm not angry, Martin. I'm just really frustrated with you. Mm. So now I've got it. So now I've got the emotion. So now I have to deal with it. Um, and I say to people when I teach people in how to conduct workplace interviews, particularly well-being type um, uh, interviews between supervisors maybe and staff members, is you should be looking at the emotions within a half an hour interview and how they will change and call them out each time. And particularly when you're wrapping up the meeting because you need to know how you've left the person. And this works in sales pictures as well. You know, What's the emotion the person is feeling as you are leaving that meeting? Because then you know how to follow up later and afterwards. And it's hardly ever done. I mean, people don't like talking about emotions a lot of the time because you have to be prepared to deal with it once it's out there. Mm. And because you have to be prepared to deal with it, you don't want it out there because it's tiring for you. And another reason we don't call out these emotions is because if we think we know the person really well, so your living partner, your spouse, you think you know them that well, and you'll say things like, oh, angry again, I see. Oh, I see you're upset again. And you're laughing now because you know you've done that. And we've all done <laughs> my that. Wife, my, no, you're wrong. My wife loves it when I point out her emotional state. She loves it. <laughs> But you see, I was sort of passive-aggressive when I was saying that, by saying, oh, angry again, are we? Rather than, you sound angry. Mm. Now, that's good emotional labeling, because then you're going to get the reason why they're angry, a confirmation that they're angry, or they'll say no and they'll give you the right emotion. Mm. My, my immediate um, thought is that this would be a useful technique for my children, but then... That immediately makes me think, actually, people who've had a lot to drink more or less behave like children themselves. So it's, it's totally appropriate and, and probably a sound strategy for dealing with, with those people too. Yeah, and, you know, when we're in that conflict, we get overwhelmed. Uh, another great thing to do is um, when you yourself are overwhelmed, a, a great thing to do is, is to mirror. And that's another part of, of active listening. So if somebody's standing a few inches from you, pointing their finger in your face and shouting at you, which you often get in a bar environment, now you've, you've, got, you've heard a fight, flight or freeze, and, and that's what happens in conversations. So most people, this happens to you in a supermarket, most people would actually clam up and not know what to say because you'd be shocked. If somebody comes up and starts shouting at you in a supermarket, because you're not wearing a mask or whatever it may be, you're actually going to freeze and you won't know what to say back. And, and the reason this is happening is because your, your, your frontal cortex, if you like, the most uh, developed part of your brain is becoming overwhelmed. Or you're going to fight straight back. Don't you start pulling a finger at me. Who are you? And then you're going to get into fight-fight mode. And that ends badly because everybody just escalates and escalates. Or you're going to walk away. So you're going you're gonna to flight. 
You can't walk away in a bar environment if you're an employee because you've got to deal with it. You can't, it's not a great idea to, to start shouting back, as you know, because then you've got bar staff and punter shouting at each other. It can only end badly for one of the other, one of the parties. You, you're going to probably freeze a bit as the best um, for a bit of thinking time. And then what we always suggest to people is, and it requires no thinking, demonstrates you've heard them and it takes no effort from your part at all and all you've got to do is mirror the last three or four words that somebody's shouting at you or saying to you and that gives you thinking time as well for something more meaningful to say and another way you can use mirroring is direct a conversation where you want it to go so if somebody um, says quite a lot to you and within there is a bit of a hook or where you want the conversation to go, all you have to do is mirror those particular words. So if I said to you today, right, Tristan, I got up this morning and I went out to uh, buy a latte. And then after that, after my latte, I went down, I had a walk and I bought a newspaper and then I went and had lunch. Now, if you just mirrored out of that, you went for a latte. Now, I'm immediately then going to go back to my latte and I'll probably say something like, yeah, I always have a latte every morning. Um, I normally go down to uh, my local corner place because I don't like the big chains. They make nicer coffee. I'll make nicer coffee. Yeah. Now, you're keeping me on talking about my coffee this morning. I might want to talk about something else, but you're not allowing that to happen. And all you're doing is mirroring those words. But going back to this person in the bar shouting at you, if you were just to repeat those last three or four words, I don't know, what, what, what sort of thing might they shout? Um, they might shout something along the lines of, listen, mate, I just want one more drink. Right, and they're shouting at you, maybe, when they're yeah. saying that. So then I would repeat back, one more drink. Um, because, of, you know, if they're shouting at me, I'm a bit overwhelmed, I don't know, I don't know what to say. And when you have an upward um, inflection at the end of that mirroring, it sounds like a question anyway. Um, and then Mike back goes, yeah, I want another, you know, I've paid all my money tonight, I've been here all night, I, just, I don't care that you're closing, you don't care. No, I don't care. So I'm mirrored <laughs> twice now. But what I'm doing is giving me a bit more thinking time. It's allowing that person to be heard um, and it's allowing you to get more in that moment, allowing you to be less stressed with what you know, what's being, you're being confronted with. And that person is all, also, by mirroring back to them, they're hearing what they're saying themselves. Yeah, it's clever. I like it because it continues the conversation flowing. And in some ways, I think that's what a lot of people want. They want to feel like they're being heard rather than just shut down. But like you say, it's almost effortless because you're just delivering back to what to them what they've already given you. Well, and also the, the interesting thing with this is, is that no one will have a clue what you're doing. I suppose in a sense, whenever you say anything to anyone, you tend to end on the most important point. And to have that returned back to you in the form of a sort of query or question or, you know, someone wanting sort of, a better insight into it, I guess, is quite gratifying. Even if you don't recognise it at the time, it feels good. This is now we're 
piecing together all the ads and listening. So I've emotional labeled you. Now I've mirrored you. And now I'm going to probably ask an open question to try and get some more information, which is another part of active listening. And to expand mirroring is summarizing. And the reason we summarize is to make sure we're on the right track and also to give us thinking time. Um, particularly, you know, some people will talk with, uh, I mean, I, I can be guilty of it, but you can talk in very long paragraphs and you can drone on a bit maybe. Um, and that sort of individual, you need to stop and say, can I just make sure I've got this right? You're complaining that this, 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 and you're unhappy with this service because of this. Is that correct? Because at that point, they might come back and say, no, you got the first bit right, but you're wrong about the one complaining. So I suppose that's an extended way of, of mirroring to make sure that you've got it. Yeah. So are there any more techniques that we haven't covered that um, you think would be useful to mention? Well, if we're just talking about active listening, so there's the mirroring, the emotional labeling, the open... Uh, when we talk about open questions, we all know what open questions are. They're, they're the ones we get taught at school, aren't they? The, the who's, the why's, the what's, you know. The, but we'll always say in our world, use what and how questions. Because why can be quite accusatory. And it can be quite intimidating. But what and how, you tend the gentler questions and you tend to get more information. If I just ask why, it's so easy for you to come back. Well, well because. Yeah, I think uh, when you ask why, you're, you're almost demonstrating, you know, a, a complete lack of comprehension as to, uh, as to the reasons that these things have taken place, whatever it might be. Like what on earth would cause you to do behave this way? Whereas when you ask what you're acknowledging that they have behaved a certain way, but, uh, but you're then inquiring about what the trigger was to make that happen, right? And so I guess it just demonstrates a little bit more understanding to their situation than, than, a, than a why, which, as you say, is quite harsh, really, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's, it's quite threatening. Um, well, I mean, mm. um, it's like when somebody says, what you, what you should do, Martin, what you must do, what you need to do, you know, when I hear like that sort of language, that's a trigger for me because I often think, should I now? <laughs> or who are you to tell me what I must do? And there are some people that do that a lot. You know, their language is very should, must, need. Uh, and that's where the parent-child relationship comes in, you know, transaction analysis, isn't it? where, you know, somebody's a, um, see themselves as above you if you like, in the pecking order of the relationship. And so yeah. I'll often use words like that, sort of words to listen out for with an individual like that. They're quite absolute words, aren't they? You know, they are, you know, this is the course of action you have to take rather than a recommendation, what you might like to do, for example. Yeah, I mean, the, the worst thing you could say to somebody in a crisis is... Or, well, a, a difficult encounter. Let's say somebody who's in that hostage situation I gave you at the very beginning. Mr. Angry, with a hostage, with his spouse, in a barricade situation, in a house, armed. The last thing in the world you say to an individual like that is, what you must do is put down a gun and come out. Because the first thing they're saying turn around to you and say is, don't tell me what to do. Because you've been too prescriptive already. 
nicer words to say would be words like um, a better course of action for you might be, Frank, is to maybe consider putting the gun down and then talking to us. So we're, we're making it nicer, if you like, more softer language than and not dictatorial to, towards them. Do you, do you um, have to sort of adjust your language based on the sort of motives of the hostage taker or, or the individual? I mean, presumably it's quite a different conversation with someone who stood on a ledge, who, you know, emotionally is at the end of their tether uh, to, you know, a, you know, a professional criminal, let's say, who has people hostage in a bank, you know, like in a movie or whatever, um, you know, has a real, no real sort of emotional um, turmoil going on. They're just, you know, hard-nosed, cold killer or whatever, willing to do whatever it takes to get the money. Yeah, I mean, difficult... I put them in a category of difficult people. So they're the people that are full of ego, need to prove that they can do great things, um, don't listen, arrogant, um, argumentative. You know the type. You probably work with some of them. We all do. So there's, there's your difficult individual. There's no point getting into arguments with these people because you will lose. Now, the idea is, is to feed that ego, to allow them to feel as though they're in control and they're running the show and build their self-esteem. With all the active listening that we talked about, you, you start then to chip away at the stress, you start to relax them, um, and all this is the hard work bit that we talked about at the very beginning with our stairway and our, our negotiation sequence. You know, this all takes a lot of time and a lot of effort. It's interesting because it sounds like what you're saying is that in order to give them the sense of control that, and, and you know, to feel like they have their basic needs fulfilled, you're actually defining the parameters of the situation. So it's a sort of almost like two birds, one stone, in a sense. You're defining what is and isn't achievable, but also they perhaps might calm a little bit because they feel like, you know, that they, there's more control over the situation than they, they did before. But it, but it is only by, you know, all these little tips about feeding ego and raising their self-esteem and convincing them that your advice is to their advantage. You know, the, the real root of all this, however, is the listening. Um, and not coming in with it, having not earned the right to actually problem solve. Because once I've got that rapport, you see, now is the time I can start to try and influence. And often a lot of these scenarios are mainly towards the end of them, it becomes about saving face. They know it's not going anywhere. They know we're not going anywhere. So they actually want to come out, and it's a very big step for them to actually come out. So we need to give them a way to save face where they feel it's okay for them to do that. Do you tend to find that when they have finally come around that that sort of transition happens quite quickly? Is it sort of all of a sudden, you know, everything kind of unravels and then they come, they face, they face, you know, face up to the facts that they're not going to get what they want out of this situation? Yeah, it, it tends to actually. Um, that's a very good question. I, I haven't given that a lot of thought, but as you were asking the question, I immediately said, I thought to myself, yes, because it, 
it, it does. Yeah, that, that, that point comes. Just as I was talking about saving face, sorry, and, and that's very prevalent in, in your world because they've got their mates with them, they've got mm. their girlfriends or boyfriends with them, um, they stood up to somebody, uh, an employee in one of your premises, um, and now they've got to back down. So they do one of two things. They're either going to throw a drink, throw a glass to make a final point, and then storm off, you know, to save a bit of face. You, you showed them at the end there, didn't you, Harry? Throwing that glass. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, so that's one of the things they do. Or you can give them a way to save face. Um, and it's not easy. Obviously, taking people away from audiences is a great thing to do if you can do that. Um, you know, sometimes when we've got a, somebody uh, in a crisis who's at height in London, think about the, think about London in particular, the amount of people that could actually see that individual from their flats, from their houses, from the street. Hundreds. So what we tend to do in a situation like that is that we will clear a huge area. So to give that person the ability to save face, look, nobody's looking at you. If you decide, Privacy yeah, almost. you decide to come down now, no one's going to see this. No one's going to know what we said to you. Um, no one's going to know the reason you changed your mind. Whereas in the bar environment, when you've got all their friends around them as it's happening, otherwise they wouldn't do it after. How many people? I lo how many lone people cause problems in bars? Not that many compared to a group of people or somebody with some people because they're showing off. Yeah. And yeah. so it's working out what to say to that individual, knowing it's going to be overheard by their mates. Like I'm sure in in the line of work of hostage negotiation, you get a lot of abuse thrown at you, and and as a police officer in general, what would be your sort of tips for handling that and staying calm when? People get really personal. Well, mirroring is great, but also vent, you know, allowing people to vent. Um, we, we call it effective silence in the negotiation world. Um, and what I teach people is if they're on the phone, for example, to um, a kidnapper or somebody in a siege type environment, and they're shouting down the phone and the negotiator, and shouting and shouting and shouting, just, you know, you can put the phone over here somewhere. And you don't have to listen to what's going on. You just listen to the, you know, the volume. And it will go quiet at a certain point. You cannot shout at people for a long period of time. And so then we bring the phone back and we start talking again. And it will start again. And then you bring it back. And the good technique to do if it's on a phone is to actually say nothing. And the person will invariably say, are you still there? Did you hear what I said? You say, yes, I am listening. And they might do it again. But every one of those doing it again will be shorter and shorter and shorter. Mm, yeah. Again, it seems like another technique that's appropriate for um, being a parent. <laughs> it's, I'm just basically concluding from this that children are, are like criminals. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, you, you, I think about a child in a supermarket, terrible twos, they throw themselves on the floor because you wouldn't allow them to have that particular thing off the shelf. Now, at that point, you cannot problem solve, you cannot advise because all those emotions are present again. So adults are no different, no different at all. You know, you say to a kidnapper they can't have that money, they will use lies, they will, use, they will 
um, tricks, and they will sulk. And the sulking for a kidnapper is just not talking to anybody for a few days to punish you. So there is no, you are right, that there is no difference between childlike behavior in a child and, and the childlike behavior in an adult when those emotions or those demands are so intense. Yeah, I mean, being a child is basically just not being able to uh, manage your emotions. Um, most adults, you know, have, have, well, not necessarily mastered it, but got better at that as they get older. Awesome. Before we finish, we do this with everyone. Um, we have some quickfire questions for you. They are rather drink and bar specific, but you know, you've not shied away from the fact that you like bars. So I think you, you're going to be fine answering them. Um, there's, I think, four or five. Um, so question number one will be your desert island drink. Uh, vodka and soda with some real lime in it. Oh, nice. Very refreshing. And especially on a desert island, that makes perfect sense. Um, so the opposite question, the sort of drink that you would um, wish to never see or taste ever again. It doesn't have to be a cocktail or mixed drink. It could be anything. Uh, see, you're probably going to hate me. I've never got on with whiskey yeah i can't can't drink it i feel like martin if we had more time then i'd start to use some of my newfound negotiation skills to try and um turn you around on this but um no it'd be it'd be a lot easier to do it face to face with some good whiskey but anyway we'll save that for another time um next question is um you're only ever allowed in one bar and for the rest of your life so this is your your all-time favorite bar that from here on in, all drinks will be consumed there. It could be a pub, cocktail bar, wine bar, hotel bar. Yeah, you know, I've been to about 45 countries um, and probably a bar in every one of those countries, if not more. And I have to say, I, I haven't got a favourite, but if I, can, so if, I can be, if I can answer just by saying, provided it is at height. So I love looking over cities uh, or views. Mm. Um, for me, that's the perfect location for a drink. Nice, yeah, I know what you mean. There's something special about those bars. Last quick fire question is, uh, you are, you're tending bar for a night, um, quite a responsibility. You've got lots of customers coming in. You're allowed one person who can be, you know, a friend, colleague, um, a famous bartender, someone even fictional. Um, to you know, be your your assistant for the for the evening. Who is it going to be? Robert De Niro. Oh, nice. Yeah, that's good. I think um, he'd be good on the charm, and then sort of also slightly threatening if it all kicks off because your drinks are really. That's bad. it. I was, I was thinking Goodfellas. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Great, good stuff. Well, look, Martin, it's been so enlightening talking to you. Um, I think there's just an enormous amount of takeaway stuff there for, for me and for, for everyone that's listening that we can, that's really useful and that we can use day to day. Um, and I'm not just talking about the bar. I'm, ta I'm, I'm talking about bedtime tonight <laughs> with my children. Um, it, it really is fascinating stuff. If we wanted to learn more, discover more, where should we find you? What other resources could we look into? Um, well, I've got a book, but it's more of a book on... Um, it's on Amazon. It's called Just When You Think You're Winning. Um, but it's a book of humorous stories of the life of a police hostage negotiator. And we've got an online course, but that's like a, a formalized 
training, if you like. And you've got the free podcasts, which are convincing conversations, and they're available on Spotify and Apple and other platforms, which is just me and a friend, both negotiators, talking about past cases and skills that we used. And some of them we've talked about um, today. Brilliant stuff. Fantastic. Make sure you become a Diageo Bar Academy member. It's free. Head over to diageobaracademy.com for the latest industry news, events, and inspiration. And subscribe to get it emailed to you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Bar Chat. Hopefully the conversation was as illuminating to you as it was to me. Don't forget to share and review the podcast. We'll see you next time.